It's Wednesday, March 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Amazing health and science news, as we find out that there might be a second person cured of HIV after getting a stem cell transplant. A man known as the London patient had a stem cell transplant from a donor who had a natural immunity to HIV. The transplant changed his immune system and gave him the donor's HIV resistance. Betsy McKay, senior writer at Wired, joins us for how it all worked. Next, freshman Democrats in Congress are forming alliances in a bid to gain friendships and influence. And it's just like high school. Sarah Ferris, congressional reporter for Politico, joins us to introduce you to the House's freshman cliques, the Gang of Nine, the Squad, and the Big Six. Finally, a story with a happy ending. Two California sisters, ages five and eight, are safely back home with their parents after being lost in the woods for 44 hours. Leah and Caroline Carrico relied on some wilderness training they had to keep warm and dry after getting lost on a hike. They spoke to the media to recount their ordeal, and it might be the cutest thing you've ever heard. My producer Miranda joins us to break down the story. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. By giving him a transplant from this donor who was resistant to HIV, they basically changed his immune system. So between that and chemotherapy, I mean, so far he seems to, he doesn't have any detectable amounts of HIV in his body. Joining us now is Betsy McKay, senior writer for the Wall Street Journal. We've got a really amazing, interesting story to talk about. The second HIV patient may have been cured after a stem cell transplant. Now, this has happened once before in a person known as the Berlin patient. We know his name now. His name is Timothy Ray Brown. We don't know the name of this new patient. They're nicknaming him the London patient since he was coming out of there. What do we know about this? It's a little bit early to say that for sure. It's been about 18 months. You know, sometimes relapses have happened later. But this is the first person in about a decade to have reached this stage of an apparent cure. Timothy Ray Brown was cured about a decade ago, and there have been a lot of attempts since then to do the same thing. This guy had Hodgkin's lymphoma. He had been infected with HIV in 2003 and then was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma in 2012 and just was failing treatment and connected with these researchers who who tried a very difficult stem cell transplant. And because the donor that they got with that stem cell transplant, that donor had a natural immunity to the HIV virus. After he got that transplant, it changed the London patient's immune system and basically helped him build up a resistance to it. And as you said now, it's not necessarily he's been cured. It's been 18 months. He's been in remission that long. Right. What they did was look in a registry for a donor and they found a donor who had this resistance to HIV. It's a small part of the population about uh, people of European descent. This man is from London after all. So it was someone in, in this registry. And by giving him a transplant from this donor who was resistant to HIV, they basically changed his immune system. So between that and chemotherapy, I mean, so far he seems to, he doesn't have any detectable amounts of HIV in his body, and they've, they've done multiple, multiple tests. This isn't really readily available for everybody. So everybody that is infected with HIV, you can't necessarily go through the same process to uh, try to cure them. 
Right. There is a big research and effort underway to find a cure for HIV, but you've got 37 million people around the world infected with this virus. And this was a very difficult, very expensive procedure, and it's not something you would do. A stem cell transplant isn't something you would give to a person who is infected with HIV and could just take a pill every day to keep their virus in check. I mean, a stem cell transplant is a very dangerous procedure, risky, very hard on a person, and given to people with cancer and you know diseases that may kill them. So as the HIV experts all say, this is not something that is that could be applied to millions of people with, with HIV. It's too risky. It's very, very costly. But it is a proof of concept, and it shows that after the Berlin patient, the Berlin patient was not an anomaly. This is something that you could develop some tools or technologies out of, try to develop some types of gene therapy. So there is tremendous value to having had a second patient right. who responded to this treatment. In the news just recently, when this Chinese scientists claim that he altered the genes of two twin girls to help make them resistant to HIV. It was this specific gene, CCR5, that they use the CRISPR gene editing tool on to deal with that. So uh, I'm sure you'll be hearing even more of that stuff in the news as well. As we noted, fewer than 1% of people of European descent actually have two copies of this mutation, you know, enough to be resistant to HIV. So it's something that you are going to be hearing more of. I mean, there's, you know, there's been work underway to develop, gene, use gene editing, as you mentioned, and to try to develop gene therapies that would make it possible for people to, if they are not resistant to HIV, to make them resistant. And, and the way it works is that this is a gene through which 95% of HIV viruses enter cells in the body. But if you have this mutation, two copies of it, it kind of inactivates that gene. It prevents, therefore, the, the HIV virus or the HIV, HIV, I'm sorry, is, is prevented from entering the cells because there's no receptor there to take it in. And in the meantime, it, it is very exciting news. The London patient, he's off his antiviral medication and he's been in remission now for 18 months. So, Great news, and we'll uh, you know pray for him to extend this, and hopefully they can push him over the edge and you know say it is he has been cured of it as well. Yeah, that would be great news, and it seems like it's headed in that direction. At least it's what they say so far. It has been quite a while. There haven't been any signs of it coming back. There have been other patients, as I mentioned, who who either just failed the transplants or rebounded early. And there have been, you know, there was a famous case of a baby in Mississippi who was given HIV medications very early after birth in an attempt to prevent a virus that she had inherited from her mother or, you know, received from her mother from taking hold. People thought that that baby had been cured, but the baby also relapsed a couple of years after going off the drug. So there have been a lot of disappointments in the cure research field. So this is, so far, really great news. Betsy McKay, senior writer for The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. They're buying Girl Scout cookies from Abigail Spanberger, who's one of the most high-profile members of this group. And they're just really having a lot of fun together. They're saving seats for each other on the House floor. They're getting offices next to each other. Joining us now is Sarah Ferris, congressional reporter for Politico. This is a, one of my favorite articles I've come across in a long time. It's just kind of fun. And I've always had this notion that people in large groups always come back to high school with the cliques and, you know, your friend groups and things like that. 
So we're talking about Congress, and it's one of the most diverse Congresses we've had in a long time. And there's a lot of new freshmen. And little by little, they're all kind of forming friendships for companionship. You want to have a friend, but also when you get these friendships, you also have a, a larger voting block, you know, but you have a little bit more power that way. But that's kind of what's happening. It's like high school. There's all sorts of freshman cliques happening. Let me start off with some of the names because they're great. There's the Gang of Nine, there's the Big Six, and then there's the Squad. So tell us a little bit about what's going on in Congress right now. These are basically the groups that we've seen self-forming in the first couple of weeks of Congress. And this, this tends to happen when there's a new Congress. There's a lot of new members. These guys met on the campaign trail. They've been supporting each other for a while. But what's really interesting about this year is that the groups really do fit into pretty neat little circles. So the one that's really been fun to cover is the Gang of Nine, as you said. This is the group that comes from some sort of a military background, and they tend to be more moderate. They're pushing a big national security agenda. It's run by current Representative Seth Moulton. He's a Democrat from Massachusetts who also served in the military, and he had helped a lot of these guys with fundraising, and so they were all endorsed by his group. So they were sort of lumped together from that. Nearly all of them beat out Republicans in the last election, so they've had kind of a moderate slant. And, you know, you'd think that they would have meetings to talk about policy and, and exactly where to prioritize their national defense issues, but they end up talking about a lot more than you'd expect. They talk about their families, Halloween costumes. They're buying Girl Scout cookies from Abigail Spanberger, who's one of the most high-profile members of this group, having won the surprise election, beating a former Republican, Dave Bratt. And they're just really having a lot of fun together. They're saving seats for each other on the House floor. They're getting offices next to each other. That's one of the funny parts, because uh, Representative Abigail Spanberger, in your story you mentioned, right after freshman orientation, it was time to grab an office, or she wanted to grab it next to her friends, the, the Gang of Nine. But there was this kind of thing. She hadn't seen the office. She didn't know if she should grab it. I didn't know that that's how it worked. It's basically open offices, and you got to call dibs on the one that you want. <laughs> and as you're saying, you know, the, she did get the office there with her friends. And now they text every day in group chats. And like you said, they save seats for each other. So it's just kind of funny how everybody forms together in these things. Yeah, and it's a really high-risk situation, to be honest, to pick an office that you haven't seen, that your staff hasn't had a chance to check out just because you want to sit next to someone who you've gotten close with to keep this friendship up. I mean, I imagine there were a few staffers in her office who were a little peeved that they didn't have a chance to actually see the layout. This is going to be a decision that sits with them for two years, at least. That's been a really funny moment, and yeah. we did hear that sorts of thing. Even just walking around Rayburn and Cannon, some of the buildings around here, you can see freshmen's names on doors next to each other, and a lot of them do have these relationships, either they came from similar states, like they came from the same state with similar districts, similar backgrounds. There's the physical evidence on the doors and, and who's next to who, as well as looking at them when they're on the House floor and who's kind of huddling together. It's just really fun to watch right. over the last couple of weeks. Let's get on to the next group. It's the squad. It includes Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is making news like every single day. <laughs> I know, her Twitter account, I just need to get alerts so I don't miss any news. We've got three other members as well. These are all freshman Democrats, all younger women of color. We have Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib. All four of them have really had a lot of fun. They, they all have very prolific social media accounts so that when they're posting, they're hashtagging squad, they're hashtagging unity type things. They're really connecting with millions of people. Between the four of them, they have millions of Twitter followers, millions of Instagram followers. Followers, and they've definitely 
definitely set up a way to influence the policy here as well. They've taken stances on everything from ending the shutdown to some of the the bigger bills, background check bill, universal background checks that just came up. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was one of those who threatened to vote against it after this last minute immigration-related amendment got added in there. She eventually did vote for it, but these four really do have an outsized influence as freshman members of the caucus, given their pretty significant social media followings. And then the last group that you profiled is the big six. These are the highest-ranking freshman Democrats. They attend a lot of the party strategy meetings, and these are the ones that are expected to rise into leadership positions later on. Yeah, we kind of joke that these guys are like the overachievers. Two of them are actually class presidents, which is a title that just brings you right back to high school when you hear it. <laughs> so those class presidents were elected, and there are four other members who sit on what's called the steering committee, which helps influence committee assignments, and then two others sit in on leadership meetings. And these are names that I think we'll hear a lot more of over the next couple of weeks. Lauren Underwood, Katie Hill, Jonah Goose, Haley Stevens, Deb Halan, Colin Allred. These are a lot of really impressive young freshmen who started to make a name for themselves, whether it's staging press conferences during the shutdown, leading a kind of march over to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's office to try and take a stand on ending the shutdown. They're actually sitting down and meeting with senior Democratic leaders on a regular basis to try and make the, make the views of the freshman class really known to the rest of the caucus. And what's really notable is that there are so many new freshmen. There's dozens and dozens, about 63 new freshmen in a class. They represent almost a quarter of the freshman class. We talked about uh, how they get together because of friendship, but also the influence, you know, they're going to band together when pieces of legislation, uh, you know, either benefit them or they, they're co-sponsoring them, things like that. And But also when things are you know, show up that they don't necessarily agree with. Uh, you know, one group can want to vote another way if they're more moderate. Obviously, the squad, as we were calling them, uh, you know, they're a lot more progressive. So some of those cracks can even show. Uh, it, it's just a very fun story. I suggest everybody go through it. Uh, and the next mission is to find out all the other groups because there's, uh, you mentioned some older groups called the Pink Ladies, the Pennsylvania Corner. And I just want to know <laughs> what group every single person belongs to because it's such a fun idea. <laughs> Sarah Ferris, congressional reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. My sister cried the whole night. So I told her to think happy thoughts of our family. And I kept watch for us the night. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. we got a nice little story. Over the weekend, it wasn't so nice, actually. There was uh, two sisters up in Humboldt County, California, in the small town of Benbow, where two sisters went missing. They were ages eight and five. The family property where they live is like 80 acres, and it's got a lot of forest attached to it, and the little girls went on a walk. Their names are Leah, Carico, and the younger sister, five-year-old sister, Caroline. They went on a walk, a little hike, and they went missing. They were gone for 44 hours. And on Sunday, they finally found them. They were safe. Everything was great. It was a very nice story. But yesterday, they actually spoke to the media, and we got to hear a little bit more of their story. What happened, Miranda? The mom was busy cleaning out, you know, the garage. She was making her piles to donate Goodwill, garbage dump. Maybe she got caught up in Marie Kondo. I don't know. But (laughs) the little girls had asked her, hey, mom, can we go on a hike somewhere more sunny? And the mom said, we'll go later. We'll go later. I'm busy right now. 
the girls decided they were going right. to take off on their own because they wanted to go and have a little bit of an adventure. And the father said, too, that they would do that pretty often, just go out and walk about because it's their property. But here's uh, one of the, the younger sister, Caroline, talking about how they wanted that adventure. Well, I just wanted a little more adventure, but I said to go a little farther. <laughs> so cute. So they went out and they just got lost. They went too far. Apparently, there's this uh, fallen tree branch that's out there that their father said, never go beyond that tree branch. It's like it's kind of like uh, the invisible line. Yeah, exactly. But they wanted that little extra bit of adventure. And then they got lost after that. Yeah, the girls hadn't realized that they were lost until they came across some metal poles that they had already walked past once. So they realized they were just making one big giant circle. And that's when their wilderness survival training kicked in. They'd been in 4-H clubs. Their parents would take them camping. Their parents taught them how to survive out in the wilderness. And the older girl, Leah, decided that, hey, we're going to shelter in place. They were staying under canopies because it was downpour, torrential rains. They were 38 degrees outside. They were able to, you know, use Caroline's jacket as an umbrella cover blanket. And they stayed. That's how they were able to survive. They huddled together. Yeah, here's Leah talking about how they found the shelter. We found shelter, a, a tree branch close to the ground. And we had my sister's rain jacket to keep us warm. Mm. So you guys shared the rain jacket together? We turned it sideways, so each of us had an armhole. She said that her sister was crying the whole night, and that she told her to keep happy thoughts about the family. On the parents' side, the mother, Misty, called her husband, Travis, and you know told him, hey, well, the kids are missing. I don't know where they're at. He said he didn't panic at first. Like, as I said, they would often go walking around small little hikes. It's their own property there. So their yard, yeah. That kind of makes sense. But when they didn't come back after a while, they called the police they organized over 200 law enforcement and military personnel to have a search party. They had helicopters searching for them. They couldn't find them. In the very end, they were found about 1.4 miles away from their actual home. Everybody says they did the exact thing that you should do, stay in place. Once they realized they were lost, they stayed in place. When we woke up, we stayed in the same place so dad could find us. And there was a creek nearby. And we saw nursery rides on the top of our lungs on the second morning. And then the two firemen found us. And Leah even explained that they heard the helicopter overhead and they screamed until they lost their voices trying yeah. to get its attention. But there was no way. They didn't have food with them, although the authorities said that they did find some like granola bar wrappers around for water. They used leaves, these huckleberry tree leaves to like funnel the rainwater into their mouths. And they even called their shelter their huckleberry home, yeah. which is the <laughs> cutest thing I've ever heard in my life. When they were finally reunited with their parents, everybody was very happy. The reports say that the father told them right away, you're in so much trouble. But I love you. You're in a lot right. of trouble. <laughs> but then later on, they asked their mother, you know, are they going to get in trouble? And the mom said, no, they did what they were supposed to do. They took care of each other. And she's like, I raised two superheroes. I think those kids are still getting in trouble. The mom says they're not allowed to go on hikes on their own again until they have a GPS tracker, which she's already ordered. That's also it's on the way. It's <laughs> pretty funny. Well, a nice story in finding the two sisters, even though they were missing for 44 hours. And on the parent side, I mean, I can't imagine that's got to be one of the worst feelings ever losing your kid. It happens in a mall, in a store, sometimes you miss, you know, lose them for a little minute and you're freaking out then. We lost our dog overnight. And I thought I was though I thought I was gonna die. Right. I can't imagine it being my own kid. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.